This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Two big stories. Russia's massive attack on Ukraine on Monday. I woke up because of the sound of a missile flying over the house where I live in central Kiev. Yuri Sack is lucky. It exploded about 10 blocks away from his apartment. Sack is an advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defense. It made me very angry. And the latest in the saga of who killed Daria Dugina. I think right now Putin is terrified. Former CIA officer Robert Bayer talking about the fact that U.S. intelligence believed Daria Dugina was assassinated in Moscow by Ukraine. I think he's absolutely terrified that, I mean, his arrest and an eventual execution is a real possibility at this point. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On Monday, Russia launched a massive barrage of rockets and missiles at Ukraine, 84 to be exact. Half of them were shot down, including 24 Shahid drones from Iran. We go directly to our conversation with Yuri Sack, who is an advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defense. This conversation took place on Tuesday, the 11th of October. The last couple of days have been uh, very different from the days before, um, and they reminded people here just how much danger Ukraine is in, Ukrainians are in themselves, um, and there's no way we can really kind of put into context what's taken place. Can you share with us just what took place starting yesterday uh, and then move on to today? Well, yesterday, I personally, I woke up uh, uh, not because of the uh, alarm clock. I woke up because of the sound of a missile flying over the house where I live in Kiev, in central Kiev. <coughs> Excuse me. And this was uh, kind of petrifying <laughs> because it's a very distinct sound and you instantly understand that uh, the danger is right here. And it was a sound which lasted, you know, half a second. And then the next second, there was an explosion. And that explosion... In central Kiev, it actually happened less than one kilometer from from my apartment. So it kind of became very real to me as well. Even though you know I'm in this for eight months now, and I I, I by by uh, due to what I do, I, by the nature of my duties, I am uh, daily inundated with such information. But still. Even still, it was a bit of a wake-up call. 
because in Kiev for the last couple of months, actually, you know, uh, we have not had this, uh, you know, we've had air raid sirens, yes, pretty regularly, uh, but we didn't have any missile strikes. And actually many people, by some estimates, up to two, maybe even two and a half million Kievans who left Kiev earlier because of these threats, they've returned home with their children. And just to illustrate to you, the day before the actual strike occurred, and you've seen, I'm sure you've seen the photographs of one of the sites, one of the places where the missile landed, and this was a children's playground in central Kiev. So the day before, you know, less than 24 hours before that, I was walking past that playground and it was full of children. Literally, I, I you know, there were maybe 30 to 40 children, small children with their parents. So it's it's a miracle that, you know, yes, this was early hours of the morning, uh, but uh, it wasn't like very early. It was eight uh, o'clock. So uh, we were miraculously lucky that that playground was empty. And of course it was empty probably because a lot of us had these gut feelings that something was about to happen and it did 84 missiles just during the first day the day before yesterday 84 missiles of different kind uh hitting different cities in ukraine uh ukrainian air defense systems and air defense forces have been able to shoot, shoot down 43 of those missiles but there is still another 30 uh, what we 41 landed and found their targets they've targeted civilian infrastructure our energy infrastructure and they've tar targeted civilian uh, people and places as a result of that strike and today there were another 30 missiles more than 30 actually and there were also dozens of iranian drones and the ukrainian air defense forces are shooting down as many as they can but because of the lack of the air defense systems which we are asking our international partners to provide us with of course many of these missiles and drones are finding their targets and there are casualties and there is destruction so many cities across ukraine and villages are now experiencing a power outage the electricity blackout because the whole power plants were taken out of action. Of course, the government is doing everything they can to quickly repair and bring back the lights. But we've been warned that the blackouts are possible. The government is asking everybody to save up on energy, not to use up too much energy, you know, switch off all the appliances. So we kind of, and we are approaching winter. I mean, okay. thankfully right, right now it's good weather, but uh, if, if this continues, and it will continue if we don't get the air defense systems. Right. The winter will be tough. Okay, let me ask you a few brief questions. Um, do you believe that this attack yesterday and the one today were retaliation for the Kerch Bridge, um, whatever happened at the Kerch Bridge? Or was this something that was planned in advance, you think? If you will allow me, let me answer this question by asking you a question. Now, what was the Bucha massacre retaliation for? What were the bombardments of Mariupol retaliation for? 
What were the mass graves that we found in Izum and Kupiansk? What were those retaliation for? So let us not try to rationalize the behavior of a terrorist state. It's been a terrorist state from day one of this aggression. Missiles are hitting Ukrainian cities on a daily basis. Yes, these last two days, there have been more of them than usual. But this is not something that just began the day before yesterday. This is something that's been going on for eight months now. This is how the war started. Was it a retaliation on February 24th when Ukrainian cities were hit by these rockets? No. This was a nature of a genocidal terrorist state that needs to be stopped. And Ukrainians are honest and earnest when we say that we can stop this army of war criminals, looters, and rapists. We just need the weapons. And we need air defense systems to be able to protect our peaceful cities because you know very little can be done when the missiles fly into peaceful cities like Kiev, Lviv, Tarnopil, Vinnytsia, Rivna, you name it. The number of cities that were hit today, uh, were there as many today as there were yesterday? There were fewer today, but uh, it was still devastating, um, and it was still very widespread across Ukraine. So do you get the sense as well that this is going to, this heavy bombardment is going to be a pattern moving forward? Can Russia sustain this, to your knowledge? We don't have um, accurate information about the stockpiles of these missiles in Russia. But our president today, when he was speaking to the G7 leaders, he said that lately Russia has ordered 2,400 Iranian kamikaze drones, for example. Now, we also understand that Russia will be capable of producing new missiles. So we have no idea for how long Russia will be able to sustain it, but we have to act on the pretext and on the assumption that Russia will go on indefinitely until it is stopped by efficient air defense systems and by their efficient counteroffensive and um, punishment on the battlefield by the Ukrainian army. We are capable of doing both, but we need our allies to stand with us. The uh, counteroffensive that's been going on in the south uh, and I guess in the east as well, um, how will that continue? Um, will will well? What's the status of that at this time? It will not change. We will not slow down. We will not alter our plans. The objectives that have been set before our military are plain and simple. We need to liberate Ukrainian land from these occupiers, and uh, you know the counteroffensive continues regardless of the. Missile strikes, regardless of the fake referendums, regardless of the annexation, attempted annexation of our territories, regardless of the mobilization or the partial mobilization in Russia. So uh, we will not be deterred. We will not be intimidated by these missile strikes. Actually, every rocket, every missile that is fired at our cities and our people only makes us even more determined to continue to fight. And this was what our Ministry of Defense yesterday made it very uh, clear. We will not be intimidated. We will fight. And we will never surrender. And we are sure that Russians understand this. And, that, that, you know, everything they do is a sign of their impotence on the battlefield. 
they are desperate they are demoralized they are degraded this is why they result this is what the cowards do and terrorists ordinarily are cowards they cannot achieve anything significant on the battlefield so it is of course you know energy infrastructure and civilian houses are a much easier target than brave ukrainian soldiers who are uh you know destroying russian army by hundreds every day very last thing for a brief answer um how has what took place yesterday and what's going on today and i mean specifically the uh, the episode that you mentioned about waking up to that distinct sound of a missile how's that changed you or impacted you it made me very angry it made me furious it made me determined i'm with my people you know i was walking uh in central kiev just an hour and a half after the missile strike i saw people in the streets you know uh unafraid resilient um everybody believes that you know we will win everybody believes in the ukrainian army uh everybody supports ukrainian army just so that you understand there is this a uh, charitable foundation which has been involved in providing Ukrainian military with a variety of different uh types of assistance so this charity foundation fundraises uh in the Ukrainian society as well as abroad and then uh, you know purchases certain items and then uh, transfers them to the army so it's it's the biggest one in Ukraine they have started a fundraising campaign yesterday and it was a very it was named very simple uh, we're fundraising for revenge we're fundraising for revenge and listen to this in a country which is experiencing severe economic difficulties you can understand that a lot of people have lost their jobs a lot of people you know the 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 well-being the financial stability of people has gone down dramatically but in less than 24 hours ukrainians have donated almost 3 uh 350 million ukrainian hryvnias which which is about 10 million US dollars or, or a million years. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out the math, but it's it's a huge amount. And in less than 24 hours, this is incredible. So this is how it made everybody feel. Every Ukrainian yesterday felt enraged and determined to continue to beat this enemy and to bring them to justice. Well, Yuri, um, good luck. I'm glad to hear about the uh, the fundraising. I read about that a little earlier, and uh, um, good luck with that. Um, also, uh, hope you stay safe, and uh, we'll be back in touch with you uh, in the coming days. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, JJ. Speak soon. Recording stopped. Okay. Um, I'm going to let you go. Uh, I know it's late there. I'll get cracking on yeah this. i still have i still have interviews lined up so don't worry about that i mean it's uh it, it's been a roller coaster and you know back to back uh but it's 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 okay we're happy to yeah. i'm happy to be able to you know reach yeah. out to as many people as possible because like tomorrow there will be a ramstein meeting you know and uh all of us involved in communications are now drumming up this uh urgency to uh, you know, the White House today said that they are sending that they will fast track the delivery of the NISAMS yeah. systems. The Germans are sending us the Irish T system. So hopefully, I mean, this will not solve the problem. Ukraine is a large country. So, you know, we get those systems. We'll, we'll be, some patches will be patched up. 
in terms of the safety of the sky. But um, yeah, it's 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 a tough one. Yuri Sack, advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defense. Now to the question about who killed Daria Dugina. You might remember we did some coverage of this several weeks back after the daughter of a prominent Vladimir Putin ally was killed in an assassination attempt. There were questions about who did it. Some said it was Ukraine. Some said it was the FSB in Russia. The U.S. now says it was Ukraine. Robert Bayer, former CIA covert operative. Well, first of all, JJ, we don't, we haven't seen the evidence, but I, I, until we do, I'll trust the U.S. government. I'll trust this New York Times article. Uh, what surprises me is the Ukrainians can carry out an operation this sophisticated inside Moscow, which which begs the question, and I certainly don't know any answer to, is. Are there elements of the Russian government, the security services, uh, Russian partisans, as they, they're called, coordinating with the Ukrainians? I mean, this is a there's a, a very strong relationship between Ukraine and Russia that goes back a long, long time, and we just don't know what the reach of the Ukrainians are in Moscow, and if indeed. Um, they have parts of the Russian security service, uh, you know, working for them or or even criminal gangs. Uh, it really makes you wonder whether Putin's paranoia isn't justified. You know, J.G., if this assassination attempt or, you know, not attempt, but occurred in Ukraine, you say, yeah, the Russians got people all over Ukraine, you know, like an attempt on Zelensky or something. But for the Ukrainians to reach into Russia tells me that Putin's got deep, deep problems uh, that we, we can't even begin to understand. So, um, well, let's try um, to the best of our ability, because you're pretty good at explaining this stuff. But what are the problems that Putin and his inner circle face as a result of this news that and if it is true that Ukraine was behind this assassination? Well, I think it, it's it's an indication that, first of all, that there've been no, you know, revelations out of Moscow about this assassination. There's been a no arrest of Ukrainian networks we know about um, that we're talking about. Putin is running a, a failing state. I'm not going to say it's failed now, but if you combine the Dubinina, I mean the Dugina assassination with the call up, the mobilization, uh, demonstrations, people running out of Russia, hundreds of thousands of them. Putin is, the foundations of his regime are crumbling. I think there's no other way to look at it. What does this mean for him and his family and those around him in terms of their security? We you ask that question again? What does this mean for him and his family and those around him that is Vladimir Putin and his family and those around him, what does it mean for their security? I think right now Putin is terrified. I think he's absolutely terrified that um, Russians are going to get fed up with this war in Ukraine. They've been lied to and they're continuing to be lied to. And uh, assassination of Putin is definitely a possibility or the regime falling apart, his arrest, his arrest. I mean, his arrest and 
and eventual execution is a real possibility at this point. Wow. I just, things are not going well for him. This is, this is, there's no signs that he's going to turn this war around. And if he fails in Ukraine and if he loses Crimea, where does it go next? And I think it's the downfall of the regime. You know, it's, it's look, JJ, it's impossible for us to get inside the power structures in Russia. What goes on in the military system, the FSB, uh, across the country, we just don't know. So we're, we're speculating here. Um, but I again, I see Russia as a failing state. Robert, so if what you're saying is true, um, and you, you, you're, you're quite often right. There are very few times I've seen you be wrong about anything. But but anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about today. But if this is true, um, there are people around Vladimir Putin who are loyal to him. How, how does this impact their loyalty and how do they potentially contribute to this crumbling of the regime? Well, I think the problem is, and I, I've certainly heard this over and over again, that Putin is isolated, that he's listening to a half a dozen people, but their fates are tied to him. Um, they're arguing this war is winnable. Uh, yes, a couple of mistakes, but we, you know, we were right in the first place. Keep going at it, uh, but don't turn back. Uh, you cannot give up you know you settle with the ukrainians in a deal that doesn't include these four provinces so i don't think i mean all along he's been getting a terrible advice from first from the fsb to invade that it would be a walk a walk in the park um that he could transfer his major part of his army to donbas and beat the ukrainians and settle for a, a victory than less than he'd hoped for so his advice is over and over been wrong. Uh, this mobilization, whoever was in charge of that has utterly failed. I mean, it just looks terrible, the optics on this for Putin. He knows it. So his world is getting very small. Uh, at the same time, you can almost count on it. He's becoming paranoid and he's wondering who he can trust and the people around him, mainly ex-KGB officers, know that if there's any sort of a coup, they're going down too, and they're going to go down fighting. Speaking of going down fighting, he's threatened to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Um, the corner that it seems as though he's in, based on the scenario that you painted, does that situation afford him the opportunity or the, the ability or the willingness to use nuclear weapons? I think the chances of his making under this pressure, another miscalculation is the chances are good. Now, whether he escalates slowly, like tacking uh, supply nodes in Poland or even Bulgaria we just don't know. I think the best guess is that he blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, which is, you know, this energy thing. He's counting on that with OPEC plus today uh, cutting back two million barrels a day. This is huge. I mean, he and Mohammed bin Salman are counting on crushing Europe and the United States this winter. And is he hoping that's going to work? Or is he going to set off a test nuclear weapon on the border, which he could do, 
You could even do it underground, a tactical nuclear weapon. Any of these are possibilities or an attack, like I said, on Poland is another good possibility. But I just simply don't see him settling in any way with, with Kiev. So then that happens, some kind of nuclear decision is made by Vladimir Putin, some kind of device is detonated. What options do the West and the U.S. specifically have at that point? Well, if he attacks a NATO state like Poland, a NATO member, uh, well, they probably invoke Article 5 and we'll have to hit the Russians. But if he sets off a tactical nuclear weapon on his border, a test, as, as more blessed or as warning, uh, we can ignore it. If he sets off a strategic nuclear weapon in, in Kiev, that's something different. And really, we have no options because we're talking about, um, you know, mutual assured destruction, which nobody in this administration or Moscow wants to go down that road. So I would say there's going to be some sort of if he continues to lose ground in Luhansk and, and, and Donetsk, he will in the Donbass, he will um, he will have to escalate in some way. And he's probably considering all of these options. Okay. But to to give up at this point, that would be the end of him politically. Okay. okay, back to where we started with this, the Dugana assassination. Um, if there is some kind of um, connection or cooperation between the security services of Ukraine and Russia, um, that means that there is a very serious problem inside the the Russian government. Uh, do you believe that these are the people, as you mentioned earlier, if things go poorly for Putin, he might end up getting arrested? Do you think these are the people that do that uh, type of arrest, or does this come from those loyal subjects around him who may not be so loyal after all? I think the best we know about the people around him, they are as delusional as he is about a greater Russia and the rest of it. And it would be more like a faction of the FSB that would assassinate him. You know, this is like total speculation, okay? Um, and don't forget, he spent all these years coup-proofing his government. That means there's no colonels in the military that, that think independently. Uh, this, is a, this is an old tactic of totalitarian regimes, is make sure the people in the military aren't thinking on their own. So where this would come out of it's it, it's very hard to say because you know like for instance there's there's no way we're going to know because they're not going to be on the phone you know plotting or considering this and we get our best intelligence on Russia grabbing it out of the air you know or off Telegram or wherever but uh, we're not going to see any planning for this if it's going to come as a surprise to Putin it's going to come as a surprise to us. Robert, as always. Thank you for your information. Um, seems like you're spot on again. I appreciate the opportunity. Yep. Well, we're, you know, JJ, we're out there speculating in, in pretty much a vacuum. And you just, you, you, you will, we will get things wrong. Um, and it's just, we just sort of have to wait until tomorrow. Well, we that that is true. Um, but the thing is, um, we haven't done really any speculating here we've just uh, dealt with what what we know at least i have asked these questions and you've responded 
saying very well, uh, and people are clear that uh, you said that this is part, this is speculation, at least from the point of view as to what will happen. But what, in terms of what has happened, you gave us some very good uh, discussion on what you think happened and the evidence, the lack thereof about the Dugana assassination. So I think that's what people come away from this conversation with, learning something that they haven't they didn't know about before and knowing what we all know anything could happen in moscow going forward right yeah now we do what we don't know is why that the the, uh, the ukrainians wouldn't assassinate a military leader it's you know unascertainable i mean for you and me the idea would be all right let's let's hit a general that does some real damage to putin rather than an ideologue or the daughter of an ideologue and those are questions we don't have an answer for, at least that I've seen. So let me ask you this question. Do you think that uh, the reason the daughter was killed was because they thought the father would be with the daughter? Uh, they probably were going after the father, I would guess, and simply put a device in the car. And, you know, these, these things are very hard to do. And, um, but again, I go back to the relative I assume sophistication is they didn't blow her up in place with a, with a car bomb. You know, the easiest way, most sure way is you put it under the driver's seat and someone sits down, the pressure sets it off. But the fact that they did her um, command detonated adds to the sophistication and suggests that the Ukrainians, if in fact they were behind this, had a, a real network to rely on, which, which if it was surely Ukrainian, it should scare the hell out of Putin. Robert Bayer, former CIA covert operative. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, Iran. The killing of a young woman over her hijab and how she wore it has sparked outrage. Uh, you know, more people are joining, more sectors of the society are participating in the protests. You have the students, you have the workers. Um, you have women heavily involved. You have all sectors of society in all 31 provinces of Iran. And, and this Iran uprising, many people are chanting, don't call it uprising, it's a revolution. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at wtop.com slash email. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me as I dig deep into the mysterious case of the Potomac River Rapist. Listen to Unknown Subject, Season 3 of WTOP's award-winning American Nightmare podcast series, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Cobra Kai fans, come hear what Peyton Liss has to say on Kicking It With The Coves this week. Peyton plays one of my favorite characters, Tori Nichols. Our stunt coordinators came up with a sort of training background for each character. Mm, like, that's interesting. Uh, Tori had done a little kickboxing before, so that kind of came in when I first tried to take on Miguel and why I was cocky enough to think that 
you know, I could come in here and I could just make an entrance. Listen to Kicking It with the Coves now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you can sweep your leg and get the podcasts. <laughs>